0: You know, humanity is in a transition period right now, a really large scale macro political transition period. And again, I, I like to zoom out, right? I think that that's kind of what helps me keep my sanity here to remember that this is technology serves a higher cause, right? It's never, it's never about technology. Technology is not the end of anything, right? Technology is a means to an end. And in my case, as I've said a couple times in this call, technology is very much a means to moving the needle for humanity and hopefully building a better world.
1: How can a technology change the way humans interact with each other for a better world? How can a global community shape a technology in that way? And how can it be used to build better institutions which could move the needle for humanity? These are just some questions we'd like to tackle in this episode with Boris Mann and Lane Rettig. Both are highly active in the Ethereum community. If you think that Ethereum's community is only thinking about cryptocurrency, you'll be surprised. It's much, much more than that. What exactly? Well, let's not wait any longer and dive into this episode. With me here in Zurich is Ozan Polat, Lane joining from New York and Boris in Vancouver. Boris, you are part of the Ethereum Magicians Council. This sounds like something out of a fairy tale. Before I'd like you to lift the secret what it is, I would like to start with a different question. What is Ethereum for you?
2: Uh, so I've, I've written a little bit about this before recently and I probably have a different answer than people. So for starters, Ethereum is open source software. So the, the beginning of that is the actual client nodes that run the blockchain and then on top of it, the Solidity and Viper smart contract languages and many other pieces that, that kind of make up the Ethereum stack. Uh, secondly, Ethereum is a set of standards that form this Ethereum stack that's one of the really big strengths of ethereum is that in fact in many cases it goes standards first which is a uh, uh, very different than other open source software that only has one implementation ethereum is also hundreds of public and private chains that use the ethereum stack and finally ethereum is a global public blockchain with chain ID one and network ID one um, so that's it for the technical part of it and of course ethereum is a global community of people that, believe that we should have programmable blockchains and that they're useful uh, as a piece of Web3 for all sorts of use cases.
1: Lane, I'd like to know, what is Ethereum for you?
0: Yeah, I I really like this question. Um, I think Boris gave a really excellent answer. Um, I've read what Boris wrote about this. I I think you call this something like the governance stack or the Ethereum stack. Is that accurate, Boris? Um, And that's definitely informed um, some of the the stuff that I've um, shared as well on on the topic of governance. I, I think... I like to to start my governance talks by addressing exactly this question, right? When we talk about governing Ethereum, like, what are we governing, right? So it's all the things Boris mentioned, and each of them, um, I think, necessarily needs to have a slightly different approach to governance and maybe a different set of stakeholders, et cetera, et cetera. Just as another example here, Ethereum is also a trademark, which is owned by the Ethereum Foundation.
2: Yeah, very Um, good
0: point. Right. And so maybe that needs to be governed slightly differently than, you know, this particular code repository or that particular data structure, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I do want to give a very different answer, though, um, in a slightly different context, which is kind of the social side of Ethereum. And so the way that I conceive of it um, is the following. To me, Ethereum is an operating system for building better human institutions. Right. So this is like. Like if, if, if Boris's answer was like like super uh, uh, precise and super technical, this is like the, the 40,000 foot answer, like zooming way, 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 way out, right? So the point of Ethereum to me is it's a, it's a set of tools, again, I called an operating system that uh, is very novel and allows us to kind of configure, and I guess you could say program human interactions um, and, and just sort of organize human endeavor in a new way and, and hopefully by extension, right, allow us to build things like institutions that are more open, more just, more transparent, more participatory, et cetera.
1: So what's going wrong from your point of view then?
0: Oh boy. Um, (laughs) Well, lots of things. Uh, I I think, um, this is such a fascinating, deep, important question. This is kind of what it all boils down to, right? I I think if I had to kind of reduce it to a short answer, Um, Yeah, it comes down to institutions for me. Right. I think there's many different theories and many different ways of looking at why um, nations fail. And I'm using that that particular name. um, Specifically, this is a proper noun. Right. Why nations fail is a really excellent book um, that that looks at the the configuration of human societies and and the the economy. uh, Looks at the global north, the global south and kind of asks questions like why um, are some. Um, some countries and some economies and some segments of the human population very wealthy and very successful economically and very highly educated, et cetera. And why are others not so right? There's a concept of inclusive and exclusive institutions. And um, due to various historical and also geographic factors. Right. So this is something people sometimes fail to understand. Um, You know, one one good example of this is uh, because of the way North America was populated relative to uh, other parts of the New World, like South America, um, it was very difficult for Europeans to subjugate the Native American population in North America uh, and to build extractive institutions around that population. They, they had to actually um, find ways to work more collaboratively with that population because basically the population was spread very thinly. There were not highly concentrated population centers. Um, that population was able to, uh, you know, kind of regroup, et cetera. Whereas very different things, patterns happen to play out in Central and Southern America, um, leading to much more extractive institutions being built in those places. So that's just one example from this book of um, how human institutions have, have played a role historically. And if you, if, you, if you play that out to the present time, what you'll find is that to this day, these inclusive institutions, by and large, still tend to persist in places like North America and Western Europe, and, and by and large, not so much in other parts of the world. And so this is a very roundabout way of saying um, that... I think the power that Ethereum has here to move the needle for humanity is to allow us to build more inclusive, less extractive institutions.
2: And since apparently I'm going to be the tech guy on this, uh, I'll say the fact that we have a global uh, chain uh, that can serve a variety of functions, it's, it's logically centralized uh, in, the, in that there's one public mainnet um, and having that shared area that truly is there's one of them that we can all connect to means that it's an area where we can as kind of like agree or look to the truth of various things. So that's a, a technology building block. What other things do we have that span the entire globe that you can then do uh, large global distributed organizations or transactions uh, on top of? So I think we're going to go back and forth between capabilities and then the uh, social things that happen around it, right? So I think the other thing to put on top of it is really, uh, we understand that blockchains generally, with Ethereum being the one that's kind of most adopted for various programmability use cases, serve as scarcity for things like identity and assets, and also can provide incentives. So I come from a background of being involved in open source for 15 plus years, and there's been a variety of P2P systems before. One, in the past, we didn't have a lot of participation from China or India or Africa or, or so on, but we now have everyone involved this time around. And secondly, it turned out that the protocol level peer-to-peer, the hope was that everyone will would be just naturally altruistic and it would just work. And it turns out that's not the case. So that's why I got interested in Ethereum. I'm like, oh, here's a new thing, a new layer that we can rely on, uh, where really the only other thing that we've been able to rely on before this has been DNS. And if you look at it, it's an interesting system that has various points of control and and hierarchy. And uh, we're essentially renting identifiers, where my goal of getting... The sum total of human knowledge down to the individual, no barriers, being able to push it online in a way that they can own it rather than as a sharecropper on someone else's system requires that even things like renting an identifier at $10 a year for a domain name is too high a barrier. So thus, some of the pieces of Ethereum, so for me, become a set of capabilities that let me get to my goal of empowering people around the world to, like I said, put their information online in a way that they own it and their information, meaning everything from identities to content and everything else between.
3: That's a very interesting comparison that you're drawing there, Boris. I also see like you explain or identifier. what you mean by that, but you also mentioned that uh, you see hierarchies in the current system building up on DNS. How would you describe those hierarchies?
2: Uh, so, I mean, it literally, it works. Someone, someone runs the, the top-level domain, dot, like dot .com, and I could go and register sucks.com And uh, someone else could then, or Lane could decide that he doesn't like that, and he might be able to take me to court and, and actually take that domain from me. So that's a contrived example Uh, So think again of top-level domains that are rooted in a country, uh, .ca, .de. I tried to register uh, boriscoin.ca, and it turns out the Canadian registry doesn't allow you to register domain names with coin in it. I'm like, weird, okay. Uh, So ultimately, there's a a hierarchical system of of, uh, the uh, Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. It's something that can be taken down. Um, permissionless is the wrong word here. Uh, but essentially, like, again, th- there's barriers and part of those barriers are economic. Uh, so these various registrars then charge money of varying amounts to post it. Um, and, and I'm all about lowering those barriers to entry um, in part with technology and protocols. And then on top of it, the social systems that have to form around those technology and protocols.
0: I like the last point you made there, Boris. I, I was gonna jump in and say, what what I find so fascinating about this is that DNS is a, literally a hierarchy. like it is a hierarchical technology. Yeah. it's it's built, you know, in a series of tiers. like he said, there's kind of root um, servers and providers, and you know kind of each level below that is tiered below it. But what's so fascinating to me is how this technical data hierarchy maps to a social hierarchy. And this goes to to Boris, your last point about accessibility uh, and charging fees. you know, ICANN, the, the, the organization you mentioned, the Internet uh, Corporation of Assigned Names and Numbers that sits at the top, happens to be a large, I believe it's a for-profit corporation headquartered in California. Um, you know, and, and, and those of us at the bottom trying to register boriscoin.ca or LaneSox.com are just ordinary, you know, individuals. Uh, and so how do we, I think a lot of what's central to the Ethereum movement, the social piece of it, the Bitcoin movement, you know, kind of cypherpunk um, roots that we have here is turning that around, right? Like, like a great example here is going from surveillance to surveillance. Surveillance in French literally means to uh, observe from above. And there's this concept of surveillance, which is, no, we're going to observe from below. We're going to observe the observers. So how do we kind of turn those hierarchies upside down?
3: Yeah, I liked that image a lot with like surveillance and surveillance. Uh... It's great. Um, and I really like also that, that you drew the comparison to, to, the, to the Internet as we use it today. And the blockchain space gets gets a lot of times compared to, the, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, days of the Internet um, with the .dot com boom and everything, out of which a lot of pioneering projects actually did not make it. And there are voices that Ethereum, also clearly a pioneering project, might have the same faith. As, as you say, pioneers get stepped in the back. How would you feel if such an outcome would happen?
2: It's not going to, and it's actually the completely wrong analogy. So did a lot of open source project from those days not make it? Let's look at some examples. Linux, is it still around? It got started in 1991. Mm, Let's think of another one. The Apache web server, 1993, still around. MySQL, 1995, still around. That last one is actually super interesting. Still around, had a commercial corporation form around it. That commercial corporation got purchased by Oracle, which is traditionally not seen as a good actor in the open source space. And so it forked, and now it's known as MariaDB. I feel very, very confident that right now the Ethereum stack is the most powerful, most complete, and most composable system And so from an open source software perspective, I think those components will continue to live on. That doesn't mean that the code might fork, and it might mean that various chains that run on the Ethereum stack, including Ethereum mainnet, might fork. Uh, But again, you know, in case you miss it, I actually said Ethereum already runs hundreds of public and private chains so if you look at chainid.network, it's a project that uh, I help a little bit out with the website, but uh, Pedro from Wallet Connect and, uh, and Ligi, who works on uh, the Android Wallet client, uh, among many other things. And it's trying to be kind of like an ICANN saying, hey, if you're going to launch a new public chain, please register your chain ID and your and your network ID so that different systems of the Ethereum stack understand which chain that they're connecting to. Those are those are just the public chains. And if we think about uh, everything from, you know, Lane might actually have an Ethereum stack powered chain on his laptop that he uses for development, right? That's, that's the Ethereum project. If we take that analogy uh, and we fast forward 20 years, I'm very positive on the state of the Ethereum stack at that point.
0: Boris, thanks for sharing ChainID.network. I I literally just pulled it up in another browser tab and took a look. There's there's 40 or 50 networks listed there. Uh, That is really cool. Like I have not heard of uh, almost any of them. You know, there's a Nepal blockchain network on that list. So massive shout out to Nepal blockchain network. You guys rock. Uh, You guys are keeping Ethereum alive as well in your own way. I agree with and identify strongly with what Boris is saying. Um, I would just add a tiny bit, which is that this goes back to the first question we talked about, which is like, what is Ethereum? Well, I think that, you know, The existing data structure that we call the Ethereum mainnet today um, may be forked, will likely be forked many times, uh, may not exist in 10 or 20 or 30 years, but that is only one aspect of Ethereum, right? I I think that in, in some way or another, and likely in very many exciting ways, Ethereum as a project, as a concept, as a meme, as a code base, as an open source project is here to stay. And, and I think will grow and develop in a thousand exciting ways. There's all kinds of exciting things being built on top of Ethereum today. And that is the beauty of open source projects, right? Is that um, they're permissively licensed in general and they're composable. I think a really awesome example of this is BSD, which powers OSX. And I think maybe even uh, the iOS stack as well. So it's in like billions of devices around the world today. Who knows, maybe Ethereum will you know, similarly power you know, commercial architecture in the future. I guess only time will tell.
3: It's, uh, I really like the uh, good point, boys, with all the stating all the years and all the projects. One can't argue with that. Kudos, chapeau. <laughs> I,
2: I, you know, I mean, I, uh, obviously we can think of applications on top of them um, that didn't work. And they didn't work because it was a context of the world at the time. And I think that's the other thing to understand of where we're at and where things are going and the hype cycle and trough of disillusionment and and everything else like that, right? Um, We're having a podcast to talk about a global database, right? Like from a technology perspective, right? If we zoom all the way up, what's exciting about it is exactly all the things that Lane says, which is a global community that in three, four, five years has an annual conference that has 5,000 attendees. Because of how hyper-connected we are, uh, Ethereum went whoop. And, And that's continuously what we're seeing. As the world is more and more connected, it means that there's no barriers to finding out about this. And then there's no barriers to running a node in Nepal. And that's the exciting stuff about it. Many of us, from a technology perspective, want things to get more boring. But we're not there yet.
0: That's, that's fantastic. I like that. Make, make Ethereum boring.
2: <laughs> <laughs> T-shirts.
3: <laughs> nice. A good, I see good swag coming up for the next DevCon in Osaka. I have one question that was um, partially answered before. Is it Ethereum at all costs? Or is it decentralization at all costs? Kind of like, what is the goal of, of what we're doing here?
0: I don't believe in isms, I, I and I think Boris and I have this in common. I, I'm very opposed to um, tribalism or maximalism. And, uh, you know, as I was joining the blockchain community in 2017, I was very turned off by a lot of what I saw in the Bitcoin community. And I think that was the reason I was attracted to the Ethereum community. It's not anything at all costs. It's about many things, right? It's about moving the needle for humanity uh, along the lines that we discussed. So, so I, I know that, like, my life's work personally is hopefully building better human institutions and more inclusive institutions and and lowering barriers to entry, like Boris said, and and trying to open up economic opportunity to to people everywhere who who don't have the same set of opportunities that we have. So that's really what it's about for me at the end of the day. It's not about Ethereum. It's not about... I I think decentralization has a very central role to play in that process. But I think that even decentralization can't solve all of our problems. Not everything should be decentralized.
2: Pardon me. I'm just... uh... Uh, registering lanesucks.com just to make sure that no one else gets it. Uh, Lane, we'll talk later about uh, some sort of TCR or staking process so we can decide where it points.
3: <laughs> it's okay. I registered BorisSucks.ca an hour ago. <laughs> I registered Pedrosucks.ca. Just for you, Pedro, out there. <laughs> Boris. Again, also for you. I know it's a little bit like uh, it's, it's a no, 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 radical it's, question one could say, but it's um, Ethereum you know, and or...
2: all Yeah, and then we go down to the question of what is decentralization and, and other things like that, right? So um, what I'm working on now after kind of nine months on, on working on core Ethereum and community work is uh, adding more pragmatism uh, to the developer-focused tools. Uh, what we've seen is a lot of people saying... You, you should use Ethereum or other decentralized tools. It doesn't matter that it's incredibly hard to use. It doesn't matter. One of the things I've been ranting about is like, make all this stuff work on mod- mobile. If your stuff doesn't work on mobile, it's essentially irrelevant from an, uh, a, a global adoption perspective. With that in mind, again, Ethereum can't die. It's open source software that has under a number of different open source licenses. uh, It has a global community of people working on it. Ideas from it will be taken and remixed and put into different things. And many of the principles and technological basis of those things support varying forms of decentralization. And part what I look at with decentralization is a lack of barriers, high access, you know, easier how tos in how to run a local node in Nepal or, or other things like that. And uh, so I'm very much aligned, you know, I spent a lot of time fighting for open source licensing. And I think that that fight has moved on to additional items that, oh, okay, just because you're running the Apache web server at Facebook, Maybe it's not a great idea to have all your content on Facebook and, you know, what is the license around your data? So, as always, as we solve one layer, we go to the other layers and start thinking about, oh, okay, we need to make this easier, right? So, there's one layer, DNS isn't going away anytime soon, and so we need to be pragmatic about linking things into that Web2 layer uh, of domain name systems, as an example. What other layers can we take on? I'm here at home and I'm connected to uh, an internet service provider. I recently switched from one of the small number of large corporations that run, uh, that own the infrastructure in Canada. And because we have the Canadian uh, radio and television uh, communications uh, organization, they made sure that there was open access, that third party providers could run on top of that existing infrastructure. So uh, to align with my beliefs of how the world should evolve, I switched providers for that. So in the same way, unless we have viable alternatives to uh, run things locally, uh, to run things in decentralized, to form a co-op, to run software together that's as big as something like Facebook uh, or as small as a bank, then that's something we should strive to keep doing because it, that's part of the way that we as humans can align and work together. So that long answer says it's not Ethereum at all costs. There Ethereum embodies a best path to a bunch of things and there's awesome people working on it so you can get the scale of being able to collaborate with more people and thus it's a good system um, to be able to build an experiment on on top of uh, that gives you an that gives you options.
0: I, I like that, Boris. Um, I just want to add a tiny thought that that struck me as you were sharing uh, your answer a moment ago. I spoke about decentralization from the perspective of inclusivity and accessibility. Um, you mentioned I, I love this line: Ethereum can't die. And it just reminded me of what happened in 2016. This is a bit before my time. Uh, in the community, but I think that you know between the DAO hack and the Shanghai DOS attacks, et cetera, many people thought that Ethereum would not survive that year. Um, the, the The block was really str- the, sorry. The, the the blockchain was really struggling. I think at a few points to kind of stay alive and keep producing blocks reliably, et cetera. And I think that in large part it survived because of decentralization, because there wasn't a central host or a central company or a central person to come after to. You know, to, to do a DOS attack on as one concrete example. Uh, and so this speaks to decentralization from a different perspective, which is about anti-fragility and just survivability, I think.
1: Lane, you said you joined the blockchain space in 2017, and now you're an Ethereum core developer. First, how come this happened so fast? And secondly, what exactly is an Ethereum core developer?
0: I uh, wrote a Medium article uh, about uh, both aspects uh, of your question here, which, uh, if possible, it'd be great to kind of uh, share in the in the show notes as well, so people can get a bit of a deeper perspective on it. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess my story is that I, you know, when I discovered Ethereum in 2017, it was an aha moment for me, as I'm sure it was for Boris and, and, and many of us in the community. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but the one I'll highlight here is that it, it is the intersection of many things that I care a great deal about, that I'm deeply passionate about. So there's the technical aspect, the, the technical challenge. It is genuinely, as I believe Boris said a few minutes ago, one of the most interesting um, technical projects on the planet today. Uh, There's a social, fascinating social aspect to it that touches upon things like law and legal theory and and political science and philosophy. Uh, There's clearly like an economic and financial piece to it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's there's all these kind of things colliding together. And it was that sort of intersection and that interdisciplinary nature of the project that excited me about it so much. The beginning of my Ethereum story was DevCon 3 in October of 2017 in Cancun. Uh, I attended that conference on a whim, sort of. I didn't really know much about Ethereum at the time. I went down as a volunteer and I was very fortunate to, I guess, because I was as I was there as a volunteer with the Ethereum Foundation, who was, of course, organizing and running the event. I met um, many of the uh, stakeholders, um, you know, participants, you know, directors, et cetera, of the Ethereum Foundation at that event. And Pedro, of course, the stakeholder. Yes, of course. (laughs) Uh, I don't believe I met more at Boris at that event. Unfortunately, Boris and I met later. And you know, went home and, and kind of thought about it, but but was feeling really fired up with with energy and excitement about the project, and, and reached out and said I was interested in getting involved in in, in core research and development. Um, was totally unprepared to do that, but was excited by the things that I had seen and learned at DevCon. Uh, the foundation kindly offered me a job shortly after that, uh, and it was really just a head over heels, you know, tumbling down the rabbit hole. I, I I think that the real answer to your question is the permissionless nature of the project and the ecosystem, as well as the warm opening, open, welcoming nature of the community. It's a combination of those things. And I wrote about that in the article that I mentioned. And so I do encourage other folks who are interested in contributing to Ethereum. There's a thousand ways to do so, to, to read that. And it gives some tips and pointers on specific places to get started. In my case, I, I happened to meet a couple people. Casey Dietrio was one of them and learn about a particular project called the EWASM Project, which is uh, an initiative to build a WebAssembly based smart contract engine for, for the future of Ethereum um, that, that really excited me specifically because I was a web developer prior to getting into Ethereum. And again, it's an open source project. It's permissionless, you know, Casey and and several others, um, kind of opened the door and said, Hey, you know, jump into this, here's three or four things you can get started with if you're interested in contributing. Uh, one thing led to another and, I don't know, I began joining the core devs calls, uh, taking notes initially, right? Just literally that, that's, that was my role for, for the first six months or something. And over time, you know, building up a body of knowledge and, and, and you know, slowly gaining the confidence to contribute. Um, so again, it's, it's permissionless. So, so dive in and add value where you can. That's my story.
1: All right. So that's writing medium article, volunteering and taking notes. That's how one becomes one of the chosen few.
0: I I I I don't agree with the chosen few. I don't think there's anyone choosing. I, I really I want to reemphasize this point that it is this sort of permissionless commons. I think Boris can probably speak to that as well. He's another champion of of this.
2: Yeah. So let let's let's just kill that entire phrase. Um, here's the secret. Do work. That's it. Right. Uh, remember, we're talking about this at the layer of open source software. So this is not new. This is not different. One of the challenges that I've had is a lot of people coming from other domains than software, from finance, from economics, from from other systems, who have had zero exposure to open source software and the norms within those systems, or even people who are software developers, but had not previously kind of engaged with open source software communities. And and it's, it's in fact, one of the things that gets people super jazzed once they experienced it, right? They're like, You mean I can just do stuff, I can help, and then other people somewhere else in the world will give me feedback? One of the things that open source has come to mean is in fact a way for a distributed group of people around the world to work on projects together. What we are all practicing when we do this is commons-based peer production. But that's too long for people to say, so we just say open source to mean everything from the legal innovation of copyleft licenses, all the way to using version control and issues and pull requests to maintain software together, right? And doing things like biweekly calls to coordinate on writing that software, which in turn runs a global system and and, uh, and other pieces like that. So uh, come for the code, stay for the community. And that's really what you've heard be described by Lane, right? he got activated by this massive Kool-Aid drinking fest of uh, concentrated DevCon over a number of days where everyone there was excited and had energy. So how can you not get excited by those things, right? Uh, and, and that's where that comes from. So there are no barriers. There are barriers of things like privilege. The four people on this call are white appearing males who have a high amount of privilege to be able to work on open source software in, in, in different ways. So those are the things that have been with us for a long time. So the next step is in fact, looking about like, okay, how do we say there are no barriers asterisks and remove the asterisks and say, Oh, here's a way that someone in Algeria uh, can spend three months working on open source software full time. And those are some of the things that I'm interested in. So core devs are not a thing that are some secret club. Show up, do work, be effective, move things forward, and people are happy to help. Uh, have that sort of volunteering, right? And you can help in a number of different ways, uh, from code to collaboration.
0: Boris, I really like that you highlighted a couple times. It's not just about the code. Um, I think the Fellowship of Ethereum Magicians is a fantastic example of this. I think the Ethereum Cat Herders, which is another organization that I'm affiliated with, is another great example of this. The Cat Herders, in particular. Um, so, so while the the Fellowship, on the one hand is dedicated to technical governance of the Ethereum protocol. So of course, in that in that context, it helps to have some technical background or experience. The Cat Herders is explicitly not about that. The Cat Herders is a project focused on things like project management and kind of managing the human side of the Ethereum project, uh, contributing to things like project management of the core teams. Uh, and it was, it was created explicitly as a forum for people who uh, may not have found another comfortable spot for them to begin diving in and contributing, et cetera. And there's no code involved. And yet it operates in exactly the same permissionless, commons-based fashion that Boris was describing. I'm happy also, Boris, that you highlighted the, the question of, of uh, privilege and accessibility. This is something that's also like very near and dear to my heart. And um, I, I don't know if it's a tangent we want to go on, on this call or not, but I, I just want to put in a tiny soundbite, which is that I think that there are both active and passive forms of inclusion. This is one of the framings that I use that's helpful. Right. And so while I think that we've done a very good job of passively being inclusive in the Ethereum community, which is to say not erecting obstacles or barriers. To different types of humans coming from different backgrounds, etc. What we have not done a very good job of is active forms of inclusion. And there are many, many, many forms this can take, one of which is like language, right? The vast majority of the material, the conversations, including this call, etc. are happening in the English language, which happens not to be accessible to the majority of humans. So that's just one concrete example of something that we could do better to be more actively inclusive to a broader swath of humanity.
3: I see the point that you're raising there um now i'd also like to add before like the the term of chosen fuse, of course we use it more like in an ironic way um, <laughs> and i see it also the same with uh, the best example is my my own experience actually when i remember it was like a year or two ago when i joined the fellowship of the ethereum magicians and meeting in, in in berlin when i joined the meeting and i just went to boris be like hey i didn't sign up and uh, i'm not a coder but is it okay if i join you guys like <laughs> And he was like yeah yeah definitely sit down sit down sit down so i could just like explore and then then observe from from firsthand what's happening there and it was really interesting i have to say thank you again for this boys for being so inclusive and open lane actually explained now what the fellowship of the ethereum magicians are But the cat herders i'm not sure if they're as known as the as the magicians um could you maybe explain a little bit more on the cat herders? what is your goal and why do we like need the cat herders
0: Yeah, that's that's a great question. So um, the cat herders, speaking of 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 tongue in cheek, uh, you know, terms and things, obviously, it's a it's a funny reference. Um, This may not translate directly to every language, but in English, cat herding refers to the impossible task of trying to coordinate a group of people who are very independent minded, like cats tend to be. So it's, it's a bit of a, uh, you know, kind of a joke and a reminder not to take ourselves too seriously. It was born actually out of the Fellowship of Ethereum Magicians, specifically the Council of Prague, which happened last year, just before DevCon. I believe this was in October of last year. You know, there had been some recognition on my part and on the part of a few of the other uh, sorry, of the, the Fellowship folks, uh, Boris being one of them, right? That, you know, while Ethereum's technical governance was quite strong, there were quite a few areas where we believed that professional project managers could play a role Uh, You know, one concrete example here is there's a strong desire on the part of many people in the Ethereum technical community to do more frequent, reliably frequent hard forks, upgrades to the network. And uh, historically, we haven't done a great job of this. You know, the last network upgrade took um, over a year from the previous one. And so we believe that, that project management is one thing that we can do better that can help move the needle, help these upgrades happen faster, right? The the Ethereum development community has gotten far, far, far more complex and more diverse over the past couple of years, right? It used to be the case that the core developer calls had on the order of, you know, 10, 12 people on them. That number is now as high as uh, 40, 50, even in some cases, 60 plus people, because there's many teams around the world contributing. And so it seems natural that there's a coordination role there. So that, that was part of the motivation. Another part of the motivation was, as I said a moment ago, that there are many capable, motivated, excited individuals uh, who want to contribute to the Ethereum project, but who, uh, for various reasons, they don't want the first thing they do to be rolling up their sleeves and writing code. Uh, And so we wanted to kind of have a platform for those folks to to begin adding value and contributing. And that's happened in a really exciting way. Just like the Fellowship of Ethereum Magicians, you know, the Cat Herders is, is... is this decentralized thing. There's no person or group of people who control it. There's no uh, company or foundation or anything that controls It is really a permissionless uh, peer-driven commons, as Boris was describing. Uh, it's grown organically. It's a group of anywhere between five and you know, 20 individuals on any given day who coordinate organically. We have regular calls. Uh, 100% of the cat herders' operations are fully transparent, right? Everything is done in, in open on GitHub and everyone in the community is free to join the conversation on channels like Gitter to begin contributing to the pull requests on GitHub. Boris is a great example of, of this, you know, Boris learned about the cat herders and, and dove in and, and began throwing a bunch of really helpful pull requests into, uh, sorry, uh, issues into the, into the GitHub repository. Um, and, and as well as, you know, contributing and, and helping respond to, to issues that were coming in. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, if I may ask a question of Boris as well, I would actually love to hear a bit more about the, the history behind, the fellowship of Ethereum magicians, how that happened in the first place, because I think that's a really fascinating story as well.
2: Yeah. So, and maybe this is a, a good starting point to say like, so if you think of loud talking, extroverted, uh, tweeting, medium writing lane as a face of the Ethereum cat herders, th- that's, that's actually an error or a mistake that needs to be fixed with Ethereum cat herders. But humans have a hard time doing that. So in the same way, because I rolled up my sleeves and I got involved and I, uh, I did a bunch of work with the Ethereum magicians, people are like, oh, Boris, you're in charge of Ethereum magicians. I'm like, nope. In fact, I didn't even create it, right? So so that was Greg Colvin uh, and uh, and Jamie, um, who started that at uh, um, ETHCC in, in, in Paris uh, uh, last year. And then um, I heard about it you know there was talk on the ethereum magicians forum which is what i found and and uh, actually interesting story I, I you know i looked around i tried to engage with the ethereum community i got onboarded into the ethereum community uh, locally here where i am in vancouver by bob summerwill uh he used to work for the foundation he worked on like embedded systems and and the uh, the c++ client and this was in 2016 and i'm like oh this is super exciting i'm going to i'm going to get involved but then i i looked online and went You know, where where does the community hang out? You know, and it looked like, in fact, Reddit was a spot where a lot of this stuff happened. And and Bob pointed me at some stuff. And, you know, I was excited. And I'm like, oh, I'll I'll dust off my old Reddit account. And I tried to post. And I couldn't because of the moderation rules. I'm an old guy who's sort of pre-Reddit. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I can't post there. So I'm not very excited kind of sucks. Okay. And then I found the Ethereum Magicians Forum and I'm like, I can sign up and I can post. Amazing. I love it. There's other people who want to do stuff here. Great. And, and so that's in in many ways how I got activated into truly working on the uh, uh, on the Ethereum community was, was with the discourse forum that, that powers the Ethereum Magicians that, that Jamie runs. So I, I saw that there was this talk about um, uh, doing an event in Berlin. Um, and I said, hey, you know, coming from my open source background, the way to get involved is you help, you do work. And I said, you know, I've kind of done a bunch of events. I'm going to be in Berlin this summer. Who's on the ground there? Uh, I'm happy to help. And this really came, in fact, after uh, another in-person meeting. So I think we can't discount the activation energy of, of meeting people in person in in different ways, uh, which then helps with the uh, remote interaction. So Lane and I have a number of shared context from meeting in person, that means that our online interactions uh, can be a lot better, right? You know, um, and I can say, "Hey, sorry, Lane, uh, I was a little grumpy when I shut you down in that one cat herders issue, but I dealt with too many of them." And Lane's like, "Oh yeah, okay, he'll he has a picture of me in his head." Anyway, so uh, in Toronto, I participated in the uh, in the Wallet Unconference that happened outside of EdCon, and I just took a bunch of notes. And I tweet stormed it. Boris, so I, to I, meet... I
0: remember you sitting in the front row there, like diligently d- doing, you know, all the details on Twitter, which is, I just, I found it funny because it's something I had done previously. And that was really cool that you did that.
2: Right. And, and then, and then, and then that, that got us into the magician. So, um, magicians, it's a forum. It's a forum that was designed to be more transparent, to be help with collaboration, um, long form forums is better than a tweet storm or a Gitter chat log. You've got threading, you can actually write long form. So you're not blocked like, oh, all that content is over there on medium. But really, I just want to like write a bunch of things that are technical or organizing wise. And I can put that here. So lower barrier to entry again. Um, And the goal of the magicians from when Jamie and, and Greg started it, they they started it in reaction to A lack of transparency in some of the operations in the Ethereum community. Some decisions got made in a private Skype channel and they just kind of then got communicated. And the question was, well, where do we talk about this stuff? Where can we track where this happens, right? Our goal is to improve the standards, uh, the technical specifications of Ethereum. And we think that a forum, it's not a membership-based organization, it's based on doing work, but here's a default spot where people can work on specifications and implementations and on working together. So not research, which is ETH research, which is fantastic, but rather that space in between specifications, implementations, and, hey, I have this problem. Does anyone else have this problem? Hey, I think I want to do an event in Berlin. Who else wants to sit down and talk about nerd standard stuff? And that was the the background for that. I might self-identify as as I participate in the Ethereum magicians, or I help out with the Ethereum magicians, or, or even I was the lead organizer for the Berlin Council last year, right? So people have roles and they have uh, responsibilities, because if you stick up your hand and say, you know, I'm going to do a thing, that's important. Otherwise, nothing gets done, right? That's not hierarchy that's not anti-decentralized or anything. It's just how humans get work done. But the important part is to understand that it's not in a membership-based organization. No person can say, the magicians think X. You might say, this group of people that have signed uh, a petition who happened to participate in the magicians forum, uh, but that's hard to shrink down onto Twitter, obviously. But that kind of... Uh, nuance is in fact really important because people look at it and again, they ask like who's in charge and a bunch of other things like that. It's like, well, people have control over various resources and there's some working rules and so far we haven't created any other rules and let's see how it evolves. So the Ethereum Magicians uh, was founded by Greg and Jamie to really gather together people who are interested in improving the technical standards of Ethereum to have open discussion about the Ethereum improvement proposal process uh, and as a place to gather to collaborate more effectively, whether it's on creating standards, uh, doing events or tackling some other aspect. It became a platform where non-coders were comfortable participating and saying, I want to talk about education or I want to talk about funding. A huge topic on there, obviously, right, which are not standards-based topics. But because there was no other spot to have that discussion, those are all things that magicians has seen as a useful platform to have those discussions.
0: Just two, two quick things I want to add, Boris. That was really an awesome answer. Thank you. Uh, the first is this, this came to my mind as you were describing the magicians. I believe this comes from IETF, Boris. You may know better than I do. Uh, there's this really great soundbite of, of their culture, which is that the right people are the people who are in the room and the right place is the place where people are gathering. Right, so again, there are there is no preordained like group of people or necessarily like time or place to gather. And what I love so much about this is that the the magicians is a decentralized movement, and we have seen examples of of people spontaneously organizing, self organizing, co creating to, to borrow Boris's phrase, um, magician gatherings in other places that are not like officially sanctioned because there's no one to officially sanction them in the first place.
2: It's uh, something we talked about in Prague. Is is if we would have a list of approved magicians' things, and everyone's like, nope. Like, right. you know, we may need to speak up and say those guys are jerks or scammers if someone uses some things around it, right? But we're like, that's not a problem we currently have, so we're not going to do anything about it. Part of that, uh, I think, comes from the early RFCs about the um, uh, the ITF. But I think in turn, it's based on uh, something that underlines how to run an unconference, uh, which is called uh, open space technology. So we don't often think about technology and how to work with groups of people. Um, But in fact, there's a bunch of these. I learned a little bit from these early unconference movements from from long-term facilitators and other stuff like that. And Lane really mentioned this operating system for people. So it's interesting that we come back right around to that. So um, uh, I've run things like uh, Fishbowl, which is a particular way of having a discussion where you don't have a set of speakers. You kind of rotate out with with the audience to really acknowledge things. Open space technology is how you have an unconference, and it's about right people in the room and law of two feet. If you're not enjoying the conversation, take your two feet and go somewhere else. Um, um, And there's another one that I'd love to do at some point called World Cafe, where you take a very large group of people and put them into little uh, discussion groups. And then as a whole, uh, you can use this technology uh, to have very large groups of people um, uh, figure out what they feel about different topics.
0: One more super quick thought to add: uh, you know, the the aspects that we're describing here, that the cultural aspects around IETF and, and in the Ethereum context around things like the cat herders and the magicians, um, this openness, permissionlessness, transparency, co creation, etc. They're really true of Ethereum itself, right? I think that that's a really really important point to make. I, I you know, there is no person or organization who authoritatively can speak you know, on behalf of Ethereum. Now, of course, we have the Ethereum Foundation. And yes, I know that like Ethereum, as we spoke about before, is a, is a trademark and that trademark is owned by the Ethereum Foundation. And there's admittedly a little bit of tension there. Um, but, you know, to use myself as an example, the, the foundation is not a gatekeeper. Like I strongly feel that I would have contributed in the fashion that I did and, and become a core developer, regardless of having been um, funded to do so by the Ethereum Foundation in one way or another. Um, I am not currently uh, supported by the Ethereum Foundation, and I'm still part of the Ethereum community and still contributing in the same fashion that I was. So, no one can be hired or fired by Ethereum. I just want to emphasize that point.
1: When we boil things down, it all comes back to the community. Um, so, what community projects are you looking forward to, or, or do you think are interested right now at the moment?
2: Uh, I'll mention two. I mean, I think. In many ways, I'm excited by, uh, I'm much of three. I'm i I'm excited by things that we can actually kind of uh, ship and innovate at, at different layers. Uh, so Pool Together is a no-loss lottery. Um, so the technical team that built it is actually here in, in Vancouver. Uh, Brendan and um, uh, Chuck from uh, Delta Camp, Delta.Camp. These no-loss lotteries, they're, they're called saving circles. There's various ways to label them. This is something that was able to be concepted, smart contracts written, and deployed, and now it's live, and uh, uh, the actual concept of the whole thing is now something that that as well as as just going, oh, it would be interesting if... You know, Lane and I being a lot of hand wavers, you know, we've got entire whiteboards filled with, wouldn't it be interesting if, because that's one of our superpowers, to have in mind many of the different composable pieces on the both society side and the technical side and saying, oh, here's a thing that we could build. The other part is actually having the time for people to sit down and build one of these things and execute them in a way that people can use them on mainnet, right? Um, um, So pool together, super exciting. Uh, Wallet Connect. So a standard, um, plus a bunch of other different things, uh, a brand that says that you can use your mobile phone and use uh, a Web3 wallet uh, app on your phone and scan a desktop web page. If you talk to uh, people who aren't super techie like us uh, and you show them that their phone that they kind of have always with them anyway could be used as a login, they're like, why don't all websites work like this? So I think Well Connect is going in interesting directions. I know that Pedro, the founder, has really been looking into uh, DIDs, decentralized identifiers, and really using it for identity as well. And he's been looking at other chains. Um, so I'm really excited about where that stuff is heading. Uh, thirdly, uh, I guess this would be like in the stack, the like nerdiest and most technical uh, Viper with a Y. Um, so it's a, uh, most people know of Solidity, the smart contract uh, language that is, is mostly used. Uh, most people that are developers are like, wow, this is really crappy. Um, the nice thing about open source is, again, there's no barriers. A bunch of people said, like, yeah, it's kind of like, kind of based on JavaScript. Um, we're going to write Viper, which is a Pythonic smart contract lang- language that compiles to EVM bytecode. Um, and, and it was inspired by, in part, the, um, uh, by Python and by some of the syntax of Python and a design goal of uh, being more secure and safe and reduced errors. Uh, so it's used for a lot of uh, very critical um, uh, smart contracts. So I'm excited about Viper. Um, um, you know, All of these things are, are, are indicators from top to bottom of a healthy community that can uh, ship things and add new things to the entire experience of what is the ethereum community
3: before we head over to lane i would really like to point out that it's the fourth time that we've mentioned pedro now in this in this podcast <laughs> <laughs> to correct yeah I, my think colleague. I think it's
0: time to get him on the next one <laughs> yeah definitely to correct pedro my colleague, <laughs>
3: Yeah, to correct my colleague Mirko, when he said, like, if you boil it down, it comes down to the community. I think, like, if you really, really, really boil it down, it comes down to Pedro, you know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> but later, uh, I would really re- like to. Un- underneath the
2: Ethereum stack is actually Pedro.
3: Yeah, it's like him. <laughs> yeah, <you know>? it's, <laughs>
2: it's,
0: it's Pedro's all the way down. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs>
0: But um, I would
3: really like to hear from you, Lane. What community projects are you looking forward to, or what do you think um, is currently interesting, Boris? Those were great answers. I'm, I'm a little bit of a
0: red queen effect going on here. I'm like struggling to, to keep up and come up with other ones that you haven't already highlighted. There, there are many though. I, I'll give a shout out to two projects. The first is. Um, Burner Wallet, which I think many folks are probably familiar with, there's a gentleman named Austin Griffith who's been driving this project. It's it's a hundred percent community-based project in the sense that it's gotten, uh, it doesn't have a business model, um, it, you know, it's it's very much kind of pre-revenue. Uh, it's been driven by grants and supported by by various uh, individuals, a Gitcoin grant, etc. Up to now, um, it's a really, really, really exciting project that uh, I think addresses one of the most important. Um, points in Ethereum, which is things like onboarding and user experience in general, right? So it's a, if you open uh, the URL xdi.io in any web browser, any mobile browser, uh, it immediately loads this, um, this awesome uh, piece of wallet software, which is obviously web-based. It instantly generates uh, a, a key, an account. Um, and you can, uh, because it's running on the xdi sidechain, you can, you can instantly and basically fee free. Um, loaded up with uh, with a stable coin, right? So it's basically effectively kind of cash in your pocket. It's been used uh, at a number of large scale events, including ETH Denver and ETH New York this year, um, where it was the primary means by which people were able to, to purchase their lunch from food trucks, things like that. Um, really, really exciting project and, and very worthy of community support. Um, the other one is called OMI. That stands for the Open Money Initiative. Uh, so this is led by a gentleman named uh, Alejandro Machado and uh, a couple of other individuals as well. Um, also supported by grants. And what they're trying to do is uh, they're they're doing work with uh, the refugee population from Venezuela. So Alejandro is is Venezuelan. Um, They've been in Colombia on the border, um, interviewing uh, migrants and refugees, trying to understand how people um, use money, how people move money around right now. It's very important research, uh, which has implications way beyond Ethereum. Um, It is uh, really, the way I phrased it to Alejandro, and I'll say the same thing now is like, the work that he and his team are doing is what gets me out of bed in the morning, right? It's what makes me feel that the work I'm doing at a very low level of the Ethereum stack um, has value to real humans in the world and is really solving real human issues and, and addressing real human crises.
3: Interesting. outs to Alejandro for this. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I would like to speak about another project from a community. Actually, it's from you, Lane. Um, one of your projects is Ethereum. Um, There you want to build a community which is exploring how new technology and new ways of looking at the world can have a far-reaching social, political and economic impact. Um, What does that have to do with Ethereum and why do you feel (laughs) should a group of technology-driven people address topics like these?
0: Yeah, um, I'm glad you mentioned it. So Ethereum is a project that I launched at DevCon uh, what are we on now? DevCon 4. So DevCon last year in Prague. Um, and it is yet another open, permissionless, uh, peer-based commons project. So uh, again, this is uh, not a project that I own or control. Um, there is a discourse forum that you can access at etherean.org. That's E-T-H-E-R-E-A-N.org. Um, I began feeling last year that I um, I wanted to write a book. And to be completely honest, I'm still figuring out exactly what that should look like. I've, I've put um, quite a bit of thought and effort into it, but it's um, still very early uh, stage uh, project. And uh, I've been very, very distracted with a number of other things. Um, but the desire here is to communicate to a much broader population of humans than we've been able to do up to now as a community, whether that's the Ethereum community, it's the blockchain community in general. Um, to communicate to, to ordinary people what this is and why it matters, right? So why should you care about Ethereum? Why should you care about an operating system to build better human institutions? Why should you care about decentralization or, or um, you know, peer based commons, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? And Ethereum was my attempt to build a community around that. Um, it's a small but like super, super passionate, super engaged group of people. We've had some very small events. We've done dinners uh, on the side of a lot of the, the larger events, like, for example, in Paris at ECC earlier this year. Um, and you know, I guess the way I would describe it is to say that, you know, humanity is in a transition period right now, right? A a really large scale macro political transition period. And again, I, I like to zoom out, right? I think that that's kind of what helps me keep my sanity here. You know, when I'm, I have my sleeves rolled up and I'm working on very low level pieces of technology to remember that this is technology serves a higher cause. Right. It's, never, it's never about technology. Technology is not the end of anything. Right? Technology is a means to an end. And in my case, as I've said a couple of times in this call, technology is very much a means to moving the needle for humanity and hopefully building a better world for many people, more inclusive, et cetera. If you zoom out, you'll see that, you know, we, we as a species have transitioned a small number of times, right? Originally from a hunter-gatherer society to uh, an agriculture-based society, and then again from an agricultural society to an industrial society. And those transitions, you know, happened thousands of years ago and, and, and played out over many, many, many hundreds of years, many generations. Um, but like everything else, they're getting, comp- the, the speed of change is getting compressed and becoming much faster. And so we're now in the middle of a, a, yet another transition into an information age, which is based on technology. I'm an avid fan of the show Black Mirror. And, you know, uh, it, it, it paints a dystopian future. And it, and it shows that, you know, if we steer the course slightly in the wrong direction, or we kind of fail to, to recognize some of the risks that we have before us with with respect to the technologies that we're building, uh, you know, it, 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 we veer off in that direction and, and before we realize that it, it's too late and we end up in this kind of terrifying dystopian future. And you see many concrete examples of this playing out today. Um, you know, one example of which is the way the technology is being used in China, uh, in certain regions of China to, you know, violate privacy and, 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 and uh, you know, perform surveillance on huge portions of the population, etc. Uh, and in fact, ironically enough, you know, there's even an episode of Black Mirror, which uh, predicted, which forecast in, in large part some of what happened in China around the social credit scoring system, right, which I think is quite dystopian. Um, so to answer your question, Ethereum is a is a forum and a community where I'd love to uh, discuss these topics, hopefully leading towards, um, you know, some quality writing that, that myself and other people can contribute, hopefully a book of some form, um, as we just, as technologists, as people kind of conceiving of and building this Um, this technical future, uh, you know, just bear in mind these risks and ask ourselves these hard questions about making sure the technology is used for good.
2: Uh, Lane, just uh, I'll put something on your reading list. If you haven't read it, Social Architecture, Building Online Communities uh, by Peter Hinchins. Uh, So uh, this focuses mainly on code-based communities uh, and specifically ones that are licensed under the GPL, but I found it super, super useful. Uh, It's available on GitHub under creative Commons whether it's things like Ethereum or like a book like this, very few people have written down things like commons-based peer production, like open source software that really has only been around um, in its wider form growth beyond a very, very small technical community in the last 15 or 20 years. So in the same way that that blockchains uh, are only very new. So we need to do that work of discussing more of the aspects around it and not not figure out ethics and other things afterwards, which of course is exactly what many people who are focused mainly on technical solutions often do.
0: Yeah, I think that that is in large part um, what's happening in Ethereum today is, is way too much focus on the tech and way uh, too little focus on the human side, the ethical side. This is another like very important topic that we could talk about. Thank you for the recommendation, Boris. Ozan, just to directly answer your question, there is no official connection or affiliation whatsoever between Ethereum and Ethereum. Uh, you know, I, I picked the name Ethereum because it speaks to again the, the human side. Um, but it's a little bit for me, it's a little bit more about the decentralized nature, the ethereal nature of the community than it is about the particular project Ethereum. Uh, in retrospect, it may not be an optimal naming choice. And in fact, if you go to that forum at ethereum.org, you'll find that the single most popular thread there is a question about, a, a debate about, about the name and, and, and what it should be.
3: <laughs> I'm actually and, on the...
2: and, and what the spirit animal should be.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm lurking on the forum, but uh, I have to say that I agree 100% with you, uh, with, with, with both of you and you say like we have to emphasize more also like on the socioeconomic side or the social structures in this field and actually... Also, the societies and systems track at DEFCON was for me um, the mind-blowing, the logical way, the logical next step actually to introduce this, but it was really mind-blowing what was really composed there content-wise. I, I agree.
0: Yeah, kudos to the organizers of the event. I thought that was by far the most important track last year and it is on the agenda for this year as well. So I'm also very excited about it.
1: Boris, I was browsing Ethereum and I found a very interesting question. Can technology truly address serious social and political issues. What what do you think about that?
2: Uh, has the telephone impacted politics or the world around us?
1: I think yes. so.
2: The, the podcast hosts are nodding their heads, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <it>. uh, <laughs> um, technology is always just a tool. It's how people use it. I mentioned earlier that we literally have technologies for organizing, interrogating, and assessing opinions from groups of people uh, that we don't think of as technology, because that's always what happens, right? At first, we call things technologies. And then when they become the telephone, well, the two things happen. So one is, this is a telephone. My parents uh, live on a little small island off of Vancouver here where I grew up. And they still have downstairs in the original kind of foundations of the house, they have a, they have a wired rotary dial telephone that's on the wall, right? Um, I think that we would say that the impact of this device, the smartphone that I'm holding up is is different than that wired version. But both are important and both form uh, aspects, kind of Lane talked about Black Mirror, that, that affect societies, right? So can they truly address serious social issues? No, because they're a technology. Can humans operating them address serious social and political issues? Yes, right? We've heard of things like the Arab Spring that theoretically was Twitter and other forms of social media, right? We're currently in the phase where we've, we've kind of slid a certain part of social media to 11, and we're currently very uncomfortable with what social media means. Is it something that has had an impact in the world? It has, and it may have, in fact, uh, affected our friend Lane's nation's uh, last um, elections. I go back and forth. So um, I have a computer science degree. Uh, so theoretically, I'm a, I'm a technologist. I pretty much immediately was the person who ended up doing more things like PowerPoint presentations and translating between business uh, and technology, uh, a.k.a cool, what's the product that we can build with this thing? But what often happens, because I'm very interested in frontier technology, as I dig into it, I realize like, oh, this isn't quite ready yet. This isn't quite ready yet. Oh, I need to go down to a lower level to help fix and improve some of those pieces. So some of these things can get built in a, in a certain way and bring some of those learnings in. I was around at a phase before Facebook and before YouTube, as an example. And in that time, uh, there was actually an explosion of social networks. And so we learned a lot from building systems uh, like that, right? Oh, you know what? Like as soon as you have a social system that allows you to send pictures, you've just created a dating site. So if you have in mind that you're building a dating site, you need to have blocking built in. It's non-optional, right? A technologist might say, oh, I don't need that feature, or I don't need that function. And if we look at it more holistically, we're like, it's actually a product requirement if you care about these attributes about a system and about protecting some of the participants in your system. And if you wait to add some of these things, here is what will happen. Uh, I want to give you an example. So uh, everyone is familiar with Slack, especially the the, the messaging system that's designed for businesses that recently uh, IPO'd, um, and lots of people say, oh, it's just IRC, it's crappier IRC, and they make a bunch of money, I'm super (laughs) grumpy about that. Uh, They have a a free version. Anyone can create it initially. There's no barriers to creating a new Slack group. You can add as many people as you want, um, except um, the intent with which it was designed is that all of the people inside the system trust each other because their use case is using it for businesses and organizations. And it doesn't make sense to build, it's, it's okay, we, we trust everyone in here. So they haven't built in some social tools that you need if you run an open community. So there was a bunch of scammers and spam and a bunch of other things like that. And a lot of people said like, Slack, can't you fix this? And they're like, no, because we're building a system that's designed for this particular use case. It, it may not be a fit for you if you want to do those things. Uh, On the other hand, a lot of people are adopting uh, Discord, which is a chat system built for gamers. So if anyone has spent any time in gaming, there's a lot of young people involved who are still learning social norms and don't care about getting in trouble for hacking and a bunch of other stuff like that. So very quickly, those gaming systems had to build a ton of social tools, being able to mod and block giving different people different sets of permissions. And all of a sudden, we're like, great, here's a system that if you're trying to run an open community that have different levels of participants, it has all of the tools we need to run an effective and safe and friendly community, which we can't do because those tools aren't inside of Slack. So those base starting conditions will give you different groups of collaborations of different groups of people, which in fact are serious, social, and political issues. So those things matter, the design of those things matter, and we need to think about them. I'm currently okay from an ideological perspective using Discord, which is a proprietary piece of software designed for gamers that I literally can't pay them to host my software for me because it has an open API, which I can exit at any time and export all of my stuff. So just to give you another example that even thinking about the ideological, uh basis of the license of the software you use is in fact a political choice that you're making. And if you voice them, if you, to quote Vlad, if you broadcast your stance on these issues, then other people can inform themselves of both the technological issues and whether they care about the social and political issues that sit on top of them.
1: Wow. Thanks. Thanks for, for that. That was very insightful, very long, but very, very insightful. <laughs> Lane. I have one last question for you. Is there one piece of knowledge or advice that you like to share with our listeners?
0: It's funny. I've been doing a series of um, interviews myself recently called "Humans of Ethereum," which I'm going to release um, hopefully the first one this week. And I end with the exact same question. So I think it's a it's a really excellent question. You got to ask the open ended question, but it's uh, disorienting to have the tables turned on me like this. Um, <laughs> wow. I I think. I would say the following. Um, so this is partly advice, partly, partly a piece of meta knowledge. Maybe I think that what we collectively as a community have built in Ethereum and you know in the blockchain space to date over the past you know roughly ten years is really incredible. Um, I, I think everyone in this call and, and hopefully most of the people listening will agree that this is a set of technologies, but also a community, a movement, a set of values that without a doubt are going to transform the world and, and have already begun doing so. Right. We've done a really, really good job on the technical side. I, I think that Ethereum is, is, a, is a really fantastic example. Um, you know, it's up, it works, say what you will about it. It's, it's not super scalable. It's a little slow. It can be a little expensive, et cetera, But like it's still processing a million transactions a day, um, which, is, which is really just incredible when you think about it. However, right, we have done a much less good job of thinking about the social side of things. Uh, and so this should come as no surprise to folks who, um, you know, have, have seen me speak about this or, or follow me on Twitter or any of these things. Um, I'm on this like relatively lonely campaign here, although uh, like I know that, that Boris agrees with me and, and, and I think that more and more people do, that it's time that we have a very open, honest conversation uh, with each other uh, and with the broader world about the social side of what we're doing, the social impact that this work um, is having and is going to have. And there are so many kind of nuances and and, and um Uh, you know, little nooks and crannies here to explore around, you know, legal questions and a lot of the stuff that Vlad has been thinking about and talking about. Um, you know, how do we make Ethereum legible to to regulators, and, and do we is it compatible with legal systems around the world? There's the inclusivity stuff that we spoke about with Boris a few minutes ago. Here, uh, there's the stuff we're talking about on Ethereum.org. There's the question of nation states and 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 how do blockchains fit in, and I think Libra, you know, um, raises a really whole fascinating avenue of exploration here. You know, around uh, you know consortiums of companies beginning to threaten the sovereignty of states and and who should be in control of money and things like that. So. The the thought I have here is that is the following none of these are new questions none of them right these are all things that very smart capable humans have been researching and thinking and writing and speaking about for many many years for decades in some cases hundreds or even thousands of years right I've, I've been reading things as far back as Plato and Aristotle uh, Machiavelli uh, Hobbes etc you know just to get caught up on basic concepts of things like political philosophy so my, 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 my deep request and desire is that we remain humble and admit the limits of our own knowledge, right? And rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying, you know, screw the system, we're going to throw it all out, whole hog, right? We make an effort to engage with the world and to learn from the experts and the folks who uh, are you know have, have, have done way more thinking on these kind of social, political, philosophical, economic, ethical questions than we have, and factor that into our thinking going forward.
3: It's a very good answer. I would just like to before we go over to Boris Boris, for all the listeners, Boris is clapping. <laughs> before we go over to <laughs> Boris with, I hope you, have, you were able to prepare your answer now in the meantime, I would just like to quote Michael Jackson, Lane. And when he says, you're, you're not alone, man. I mean, like, this is exactly what we're doing over here. Actually, this is ex- exactly what gets us going or to quote you again. This is what gets us up in the morning. Actually, these questions that you've raised there or this point, this point. Yeah,
0: I'm, I'm really excited to hear that. Thank you. Uh, I feel a little bit less lonely and, and Boris is totally it's unfair here because he's had plenty of time to, uh, to think about this because my answer was so long.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Boris. You really had some time to think about the uh, about your answer, but hit us now. What it it the, has to be really good Boris. We're all
2: uh, we're all waiting.
3: Like so, no pressure, but what is uh, the uh, one I, advice I, I, you would I, I, I like to give our some listeners?
2: I repeat the question again.
3: So, what is the one advice um, or, or piece of knowledge that you would like to give to our listeners?
2: I would like all of the technologists and non-technologists uh, the coders and the non-coders to understand that the choices that they're making about how to organize, how to build companies, what software they run, are in fact political and social decisions. So we can have a discussion about whether uh, traveling in a gas powered vehicle or an electrical powered vehicle is more important or not, or maybe that we should have more biking infrastructure. As the technologies that we use interact with more and more people, that the that the stone of your communication, your discussion, your image post creates a ripple that can go around the world, uh, all of a sudden, I want you to, to, to think about the stack that you're using, right? So here in Canada, we are uh, further behind on things like recycling. So I grew up in an age, and on the little island where I grew up, there was literally a garbage dump where a truck would pick up your garbage and it would go into the forest and then it would dump it off the edge of a cliff. That's within my lifetime, right? The, the Again, audience, the Europeans are like, what the hell are you even talking about, right? I,
0: I, I grew up in a small town in New Jersey and it was exactly the same. We had a dump and it was called The Dump and we'd say, I'm going to the dump to get rid of my garbage. So maybe this is a North American failing. I don't know.
2: So I, mean,
3: I only clear, know this from movies, guys. I yeah. didn't know that this was real.
2: Yes. So and in the interior of BC where my parents have um, have a small cabin, again, that is actually still the same thing. It's You have to be careful because it's in the interior of BC and if you go there... You have to first check to see if there are any bears eating the garbage so that you like quickly throw your garbage out and then drive away in your giant truck for the bears, right? So again, so I I talked about the past of and you picture me as a small child of four years old uh, moving to this island, and then I'm saying today, this is the exact same world we live in today. Uh and, and then in Europe, I purchased a bag that won a Red Dot Design Award from a German company, product placement. Uh, of and, and this bag is made out of recycled plastic bottles, right? As well as liking the design, I made that choice because I'm like, I align with the with the construction of this, right? So, uh, unfortunately, all of those technologists who think that oh it's really fun solving hard technical problems, guess what? You're practicing politics. For all those people who are like ah, let's just use Slack, guess what? You just made a political decision. So in that same way. Open source software, it's done. We won, right? I fought Microsoft tooth and nail 15 years ago. They bought GitHub. They're attempting to be the most open company in the world. Guess what? The license of your software no longer matters. I want you to get radicalized and start thinking about the ownership of your data. I want to start having a discussion about a data ethics license that allows end users to have a license to use the application that says you cannot lock it in the trunk and you have to give me all the tools to be able, at worst, to run it on my own right? We need to lock these things open so that they're base building blocks so that we can keep building the future of technology, which influences the future of humanity. And we have to do that in a way that have social systems that allow us to work together as an entire planet. Boom.
0: Mike, drop. Boris, I, my turn to clap for you. That, that was amazing. Um, you know, I, I just want to add as well, like this, this goes back to what I was saying. There is a naive... Desire on the part of many people in the Ethereum community and I think again the broader blockchain community To be like above or beyond or outside of politics, right? We wash our hands of politics. We're just technologists We're just building quote-unquote neutral software, right? This is a phrase that really triggers, triggers me strongly because I don't think there's any such thing as neutral and, and uh, Boris I couldn't have made the case better myself, right? Everything is political The the fact that we have chosen to contribute to this project in the first place is already a political statement. To put your hands up and say, I'm not practicing in politics, I know this is a paradox, that is itself a political statement. So let's embrace that and deal with it and make the most of it. And this again goes back to the social side, we have to just have an open, um, engaged conversation about the social political side of what we're doing.